Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion On Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical College's Diversity Matters Initiative. This podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill, and I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. So I am so excited. Today, we are going to be talking to Drs. Jaron Jones and Michael Bowie of the, United, of the University of Florida's College of Veterinary Medicine, and we're going to talk about the intersection of leadership and diversity. So it's pretty well documented that leaders who value diversity tend to be overall better leaders in general, and today we're going to talk a bit about why that is. We're going to talk a bit about why cultural competency and and cultural humility should be considered leadership skills, as well as how do we kind of cultivate and build the pipeline for more diversity in veterinary leaders and how that's really kind of essential for the future of the profession. So um, as is our custom on the show, I always allow my guests to tell us a little bit about themselves. So we will start with Jaron. Jaron, why don't you give us a little bit of background? I guess we'll go back to my undergrad days. My undergrad is actually in soil science. So I'm not in veterinary medicine per se for via education, but I've always been familiar with it. Uh, so I started as a soil scientist and I was working for the federal government and recognized that I really wanted to work with people more and that that position is something you could end up working your entire career with maybe one or two people. And so something that really drove me to, to take a step back, uh, practice some self-awareness and say, what is my purpose? And uh, that's when I found out about the leadership education program at the University of Florida. So I did my PhD in that and recognized that that was my calling. It was helping people through self-awareness, through authentic leadership to develop resilience and hardiness, both in themselves, but within organizations. I and mean, that has translated into my role at the College of Veterinary Medicine as one, they're learning an organizational development specialist, also the Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. So I do workshops, consultations, uh, employee development, all that good stuff. And I'm enjoying it and love the people here. So that's me. Cool. Wow. Yes. So, and and just for folks that don't know, dirt is not soil. Soil is not dirt. Soil there you go. Thank you. Far more. Yes. I've learned yes. that from from Sharon over the years. I learned that the hard way as a as a young soil scientist. Never <laughs> say dirt. Never say always dirt. say soil. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, welcome to the show. And Thank Michael, you. welcome to the show. Tell us about yourself. Yes. Well, I'm from Washington, D.C. Grew up in inner city Washington, D.C. Always loved animals, knew I was going to be either a farmer, veterinarian, or zoologist, and went to Morgan State University, where I received my bachelor's degree in biology, then to Penn State University, where I received a master's degree in veterinary science. Afterwards, I did an international fellowship through a a program called IFESH, or the International Foundation for Education and Self-Help, which was through Tuskegee University. And so I was able to go over into Swaziland and do work there as the assistant veterinary investigations officer for the kingdom of Swaziland and did a lot of work dealing with veterinary diagnostics and necropsies, did some tick uh, collections um, of, with, with, with cattle, et cetera. And while we were there, there was a disease outbreak and the University of Florida was working on that disease in Harai, Zimbabwe. And so they came down, they worked with me 
And they said, what do you plan on doing afterwards? And that brought me over to the University of Florida to do a PhD in veterinary molecular biology. There I continued my studies and got my PhD in that particular area and then joined the faculty. I took a side road to do a little bit of lobbying. So that was kind of interesting, a, a break for about 17 years to be exact. <laughs> <laughs> a break. <laughs> and, uh, but um, during that period of time, I did a lot of also work with education. A lot of the work that I lobbied for was working with underrepresented groups and, and getting funding for educating underrepresented groups in the STEM areas, and more specifically, you know, the health professions. And so coming back to the College of Veterinary Medicine, this gives me an opportunity to not only continue my work in, in the research area, but also to deal with pipeline programs um, and diversity in, in the area of veterinary medicine. So I'm very, very excited awesome. to be here. Welcome. Welcome. I'm so that like that's so cool. <laughs> like, so we'll have to have you back um to talk a bit about kind of coming from DC and still kind of somehow ending up in veterinary medicine. So we always have a bit a lot of programming here in DC in March for local students and having our um, role models and kind of understanding how um, to get into some aspects of the profession are just so important. So welcome to both of you. I really, really appreciate having you on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Yeah. All right. So let's dive on in um, to this talk topic about diversity and inclusion and leadership. We talk about leadership a lot. There's always um, all kinds of things going on as we're recording the show. The Veterinary Leadership Conference at AVMA just ended a few days ago. How are we defining leadership? What is leadership? Jaron? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. Yeah. Uh, it's well, always... The fun part about having a degree in something that is a term that's used a lot is that people always throw jokes at the degree and ask, you know, oh, so, you know, you do leadership, you got a degree in it, so you can teach me how to be a leader. I know how to be a leader. And then I have to break it down a little bit more that there's theory involved, there's certain aspects and things that you have to do based upon the organization, based upon the leader, based upon the situation, and then helping them to understand that leadership is not just the act of leading a group of people or an organization, but it's practicing self-awareness. It's practicing inter and intrapersonal skills. It's understanding group dynamics. It's learning how to facilitate conversation, being an effective communicator, being vulnerable when necessary, being authentic. And so all of that takes practice. All of that has been researched. And so what I do is essentially learn more about the organization and then apply certain leadership skills and capacities to empower those within that organization to bring their whole self to solutions for the future. So in Facebook speak, it's complicated. <laughs> it's like a relationship status. It's complicated, it's, it's complicated but it's, it's fun. It's, it, well, for me, for me, it's fun. Because for one, I love working with people and I love creating spaces where everyone feels and knows that they have a voice that's valued and respected for the diversity that they bring. And so I feel that in leadership, it's true. It, the act of leadership truly happens when you facilitate an environment where everyone is comfortable to bring their whole self and identify what contribution they want to bring into that organization. And then you empower that passion to shine through. And that's how you get the best results within your company and your organization. So then the short answer, I mean, you kind of already, you kind of talked a little bit about those qualities. So 
what then are the optimal kind of what is good leadership? And Michael, I mean, you've had a the 17 career career break. <laughs> but you've had you've done a number of different things in a number of different environments, right? And so what are some of those characteristics and those skill sets that you've recognized, at least in your career, that certainly demonstrate good leadership? Well, you know, the thing about it is that it has changed significantly. And so, you know, what good leadership was 17 years ago is very different than what it is today. And I think that, you know, the reason why it is, is it is studied so much is because a long time ago, the leadership was you just, you just, you, you ascended to that particular right. level. And, and oftentimes chairs of departments, deans of colleges, presidents of universities didn't necessarily have the necessary skills to be leaders. They just became leaders. Mm. And, and so and so and, and oftentimes some of the things that we're hearing about today are the result of somebody who may not have had the necessary skills to foresee some of the things that are taking place today. So if we're talking about the Me Too movement or we're talking about Black Lives Matter, or if we're talking about anything that is pertinent to today, a lot of those things were happening years ago, but we didn't address those things years ago. Um, Those things were not pertinent to somebody who may have become a leader of an institution, for example, who their only job was to go out there and raise some money for the institution. Right. And so- who cares how diverse the campus was? It was all about raising money for the institution. Right. And so as I've seen the le- leadership change over the years, you see that it has developed in such a very, very different way. And you've seen that effective leaders have a way of reaching, you know, more than one, more than one population while all at, while at the same time being in the same room. They're able to communicate, in other words. They're able to communicate effectively. They, they're active listeners. Mm-hmm. And so they're able to sit down and, and, and listen to what people say and know what is really behind what the, or the words with, that someone is saying. And I think that's extremely important. And those are some of the things that, you know, you know as one who has had to go up to, you know, Tallahassee or up to Washington, D.C. and talk to legislators, you, you have to be able to listen. You have to be able to also convey to them a message on why something is so important. And you have to do it in a way in which you hope they are catch, capturing what you're trying to say, you know. And, and, and so that means you need to make sure that you're giving them those significant words. So you're pinpointing those words that will make them, you know, you're almost like feeding that active listening component mm-hmm. so that they're, that you're underlining basically the significant words that are, are, are extremely important um, so that they can then take that information forward and move your agenda forward. So we are hearing, I guess, and I think that you've raised a really interesting point, I guess, about the evolution of what we know about leadership, right? So you're right. I mean, and I think that that it's very similar to kind of what we've learned over probably the last hundred years around manage, management in general. Yes. And, and certainly there's a lot of, of overlap in the literature around managers and management in general and leaders and leadership, right? Mm-hmm. You just kind of wake up one day and you're a leader. It doesn't necessarily mean that you were chosen. It may mean that you were the left class one standing. It may mean that they were other, there were certainly other attributes like fundraising, which is certainly a leadership quality. I mean, you 
Correct. Leaders do need to raise money, right? But there were not so leadership qualities were not so clearly defined more broadly in that terms of of things like empathy and compassion and listening skills and communication and all of those kinds of things. So one of the big things I think that we're seeing in the leadership and as well as kind of management literature more recently is kind of this intersection between diversity and those skills around diversity and inclusion and leadership. Now, to those of us that are, we're sitting here, the three of us are chatting, that seems to be a natural, those, those things go together, right? <laughs> Leadership and diversity, they go together, but that's not always been the case. So Jaron, Mr. Fury. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. How did we get here? Um, how did, you know, at what point did DNI really kind of become a leadership thing? Sure. And, and why should it be a natural Alliance. Sure. Um, well, one thing that I think uh, has been the biggest catalyst for the linkage or the intersectionality of diversity and inclusion and leadership uh, is the advancement of technology. And I think it's because technology has allowed so many different cultures, so many different voices, uh, those who have been voiceless in the past to have a space to have their voices heard but also to keep organizations and individuals accountable. So you think about 15 years ago, there was no Facebook. So you think about how you found out about pockets of populations just in your area. You knocked on those doors or they naturally were there. You may have had a common interest. And so there was a space where in terms of leadership, you could lead a group of very similar people based upon either race, gender, ideology, religion, and you could stay in that bubble or in that pocket and never hear another voice unless you chose to. Well, with technology that has allowed uh, everyone more equitable space for education, for opportunity, but also to hold organizations and people accountable. And so now if you expect to be a good leader and survive, you know, the, the highs and the lows of an organization or just a political climate, things like that, you have to be understanding of all of those voices. So it's critical that you're able to first recognize that you need to practice some self-awareness and think about, you know, how did I get to this point? What are my morals? What are my ethics? And who told me those are my morals and my ethics? And what do I do if I am approached by someone who has a, a just a different set of morals and ethics? Do I shun them? Do I keep the door closed? Do I never give them an opportunity? Essentially, you're starting to think about implicit and unconscious bias. And so you have to make sure that now you're adding that extra skill set of being able to listen, being able to understand, being able to take a step back and say, this may be something that I thought this way, but before, but it, as, as true leadership is being able to say after assessing all of these diverse populations and voices, I can make the needed change to make sure it's equitable for everyone. And if not, we will hold you accountable. <laughs> social media will hold you accountable. You know, it, it, in terms of even you think about social justice work, technology has helped push that forward too. And so people can communicate at a quicker rate. People can organize at a quicker rate. And so there's a space where if populations who are marginalized recognize that they are not valued or are not being introduced into those spaces, technology is allowing them to knock at the door and say, listen, 
we want equity and we actually bring a value to your company and we have a new set of ideas, a new set of set of lived experiences that can bring innovative answers to global solutions in the future. You know, social media has certainly taken down a lot of people. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. The last couple of years. I mean, what did they say? There's a tweet for that, right? There, so, there is. <laughs> there's a tweet and there's a recorded video. There's, there's a, a clip. Video, there's there, a gif. There's, there's course, always yeah. something that comes back up. And, and I mean, it could be five years ago, three years ago, 10 years ago. And, and then there's a whole kind of series of events of, you know, well, how even do you apologize as right. a leader um, or a public person? And, and that, you know, that, that those sometimes those two things, you, you may be seen as a leader, even though you don't think that you're one. I think I think you bring up a good point too in in recognizing. I know you you mentioned like leaders having to apologize. The thought that being a leader is I am stuck in this vision and that is the only way. And like there's no bipartisanship in terms of understanding another side and making a better decision. That's true leadership is being able to recognize when you need to be vulnerable, when you need to show empathy, when you need to listen and make a better decision based upon having heard all of the voices that you may not have heard before in the past. And so you think about those who have stepped up to the plate and said, you know, this may I may have been a product of my environment at the time, but after reviewing my life and understanding the voices of others, I've been able to make a better decision. Like that's where people recognize there's growth there and that's true leadership Mm -hmm. versus trying to be stuck and say, you know, I'm not even going to listen to whatever anyone else has to say. And we're just going to close that door. You don't want to do that. You know, That's absolutely that. right. I mean, you you hit it. I mean, sometimes we have to check each, each other. I mean, exactly. and that's a great thing. Sometimes we have to, because, you know, as I said, I grew up in inner city D.C. And so, you know, and I grew up, I'm I'm, I'm a little bit older than Jaron. Let's just say that. <laughs> um, and so I, I grew up during the Archie Bunker, George uh, oh, yeah. Jefferson era, and, you know, and grew up in a household, you know, in what would have, at that time was considered Chocolate City, Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. And so, you know, how we saw things was from the eyes of our parents and the people around us. And so, you know, um, you know, now and then there are times when I have to understand that, you know, I need to be checked because sometimes, you know, I may say something that may not be proper. And Jaron has to say to me, Mike, do you know what you just said? And I'm like, no, I don't. What did I just say? You just said that. Thank you very much. I now understand what I, I mean, because yeah. sometimes. And vice versa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you just have to be able to do that. That's okay. It's okay to admit that you're wrong at times. And that's, that's fine. That's what all of this is about. It's, and being a leader is sometimes about saying, I apologize. I made an error and, and, and we, you know, and, and, and owning up to it and then moving forward. And, yeah. and, and I think that's important. And part so. of that, it's not just, you know, that there's that error, but, but again, that there's just, that there are numerous truths, right? We that's always right. are exactly. in search of that's one correct. truth, <laughs> <laughs> but each of us have unique lived experiences. And, and I think that Michael, what you, what you've, articulated is, you know, yeah, you are a product of the environment that you grew up in. And that shapes, that had a, has a fundamental input into how you view the world. Certainly you're capable of evolving, you know, and in- incorporating all of these additional life experiences with that. But 
you know, that's like the first 18 years, right? (laughs) And it's foundational. And I think that recognizing that there is space not only to learn, to grow, to recognize that there's, there's more, but also really understanding and appreciating that there are other lived experiences and that what that experience might be in DC might be pretty radically different than what that same experience, same time frame might have been and say Ames. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Right. That's and that they're both valid and that they're both true. Exactly. Right. Yes, I agree. Right. Yeah. They're both true. How do we how do we get there in terms of leadership and how do we get people to practice? I mean, because I think that that piece of understanding that there's more and that there's lived, that there's multiple truths in, in terms of kind of our distinct realities. For me, that's a part of that cultural humility piece. I mean, recognizing that my experience is mine, yours is yours. <laughs> They're both true and they sit side by side. How do we encourage leaders to think that way? What kinds of things can we do to help leaders create that kind of cognitive space to allow that you know, allow for that space because I think that that also makes them better leaders, right? We know that that's a, that those are characteristics of good leaders. So how do we get folks there? I've utilized storytelling and partnered that with authentic leadership development to essentially help help leaders on an individual level start to hone their story and think about lived experiences from the past, think about the things that they've gone through that may have been limiting beliefs or or things that, that helped them immensely and starting to think about themselves first. So almost leading self first and then remembering those experiences. And when you give them the opportunity to share that amongst a group who are doing the same thing, you realize that there we are different in many, many ways and similar in many ways as well. And so if you can create that culture of being able to uh, think about those lived experiences, practice self-awareness, and being able to communicate that in a safe and empowering setting, it makes it easier to start the conversations that need to be had. It makes it easier when you may come across something where you have to have a courageous conversation. I even do those workshops starting with storytelling, helping people to understand how to listen, how to be an effective listener, an active listener, listen without responding, like little things to, to try listen for understanding rather than to respond and listening for that person's truth rather than to be right or wrong. And so if you can cultivate that environment, I found that that has helped. And as leaders, we are supposed to constantly be self-reflecting upon where we are today versus where we were yesterday versus a week ago to three years to 18 years ago and constantly be evolving for the better. And I found that storytelling helps me and my facilitation of that. And through some uh, good data, it supposedly works, according to the people who've been a part of it. So that actually ended up being my, my doctoral research of how storytelling enhance leadership, and especially in, 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 as it pertains to self of, self-efficacy and personal hardiness. And what I found is we implemented this storytelling process in a leadership development course with uh, interdisciplinary leadership minor students here at the University of Florida. We had them look at their self-perceived awareness of self-efficacy and personal hardiness. Um, So thinking about their personal belief and their ability to create a positive impact in challenging situations rather than avoid those. That's what self-efficacy is. And we found that 
on all levels of self-efficacy and personal hardiness, there was a statistically significant increase in their belief in their ability to create a positive change, but also to incorporate others to create that change. Um, and so I continue to use that in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and leadership development, and in personal development as well. You, you mentioned the whole concept about courageous conversations. I think that's, that's very, very important. But also kind of presenting ourselves in a manner or presenting yourself in a manner in which you're open. And I think that oftentimes what we find is that um, faculty or staff or even students may come to us and ask about, I was in a meeting the other day and I, I said this, and I, I don't know if this was the proper statement. I'm getting that a whole lot more than probably happened before. Yes. That's good because that means at least they're coming and they're ready. You know, there's something about me, maybe, uh, you know, or something about us that's saying, hey, we're open enough to allow for that kind of conversation to happen. Maybe they would not have had that conversation with some, me five years ago. You know, so maybe so that's a great thing, I believe. I think that being open to having those types of conversations are very, very important. And that really opens up to that whole concept of diversity and inclusion and in creating that inclusive environment, to be honest. It also speaks to the type of environment that you've cultivated that that also supports and encourages kind of this natural self-reflection, which yeah. is a really important part. You know, having time to kind of just say, hmm, that did not go the way that I thought. <laughs> Perhaps I should chat with someone <laughs> about how that might be different. You know, some other if I had taken or said some different thing in that moment. I know for me, you know, I, I've I've had certainly moments throughout my own career here at AAVMC where I just kind of was ready to throw my hands up going, this is a problem. What am I doing? And and one of our great leaders in diversity and inclusion in, in vet med, Patricia Lowry, she gave me some sage advice and counsel years ago. And she said, tell me what you think a positive outcome would look like. So a lot of things in terms of, of not just problem solving, but leadership in general, for me, I think about what does that aspirational outcome look like? Yeah. And how do I backtrack from that? Right. How do I, how, what are the steps that I need to, to get in place to bring enough people to the table to actually actualize, um, to yeah. create that desired outcome? It wasn't a, easy question. <laughs> it's never an easy question to visualize, to visualize what that positive outcome looks like. Because I think that, you know, the other risk is for us to kind of close down and say, okay, well, here's, <laughs> I want everybody to do what I want them to do. <laughs> <laughs> But really kind of thinking very big picture, those, uh, what are they, BHAGs, big, hairy, audacious goals, kind of what does that aspirational outcome look like? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So let's talk about the pipeline. And Michael, you kind of have been alluding to that. So we're certainly seeing more gains in terms of women and people of color and, and veterinary leadership and in just in leadership in general. What do you make of that? And and is it just that the time has come or has the tide turned? What's different? I think that what I think there's a change right now. And I, I think what you're doing, what you what you're seeing is, of course, what you just stated. What I'm kind of worried about is, to be honest with you, is that pipeline. So what you have is a number of diverse individuals or underrepresented members who are in veterinary medicine, who are in a leadership role. But what I don't see 
is that pipeline of individuals, that next group that's coming through, that's going to come in. So as I'm looking at the individuals who are going into the field of veterinary, veterinary medicine, the numbers are not as large as we would want them to be. In fact, they're, they're very sparse, to be honest with right. you. And so we need to start to create that pipeline. But more importantly, not only are they coming through the profession, but they're not going into academic leadership. So they're coming out and they're going out into the you know workforce, you know, as you know, owning their own vet practices, et cetera. But they're not going into, you know, the veterinary medical colleges, for example, and being professors in the veterinary medical colleges and then Thus, that will eventually be, mean that then they would become a leader in, in at one of the uh, veterinary medical colleges. And so I'm kind of worried that in the future we may not see that leadership. So it's great at this particular time that we have a large number of uh, leaders and diverse leaders at this particular time. We have to also know how to mentor the next group of individuals to become the leaders in the profession. You bring up a good point, Michael, because especially in the, in the pipeline development work that you're doing. So we kind of collaborate a lot uh, here at the College of Veterinary Medicine. And so I support Michael and any of the, uh, the efforts that he does in terms of pipeline. I mean, I was telling him, you know, a couple months back, it, it's so imperative, the work that he's doing. He's he's connecting with elementary school students. He's connecting with middle school and high school and those who are an undergrad and, and all those not just those who know they want to be veterinarians, but those who have never been exposed to a veterinarian or veterinary medicine at all. And I was telling him that was reflective of my experience. I never knew or saw a veterinarian growing up, and I owned plenty of pets. And so had there been a program in elementary school, middle school, or high school, who knows what what trajectory that could have put in my academic you know, uh, future. And so injecting that opportunity, just lighting that spark to people who don't even know that that's something that's an opportunity, I think is very valuable. And so I, I commend you on the work that you're doing on all levels of education. I mean, we revamped in, in the Gator Vet Camp here at the University of Florida, and we had well over 100 applications in a very short turnaround. We had a short window and people are knocking down our doors, you know, they're sending the emails because they found out about it. And then those students who participated, they told friends, they told family and their communities. And now we have other people who also want to come in and participate to the point where we're trying to do two, maybe three vet camps just to keep up with the interest just in the state of Florida. And so that opportunity is so valuable. Yeah. Yeah, but I think, yeah. But I think, you know, as you said, you know, once we get them in, you know, we got to get them through that application process. We got to get them into vet school. Then we have to talk, start talking to them about, you know, residencies and all of those types of things. And, and if they decide to do a Ph.D., you know, and all of the steps that make that that lead towards leadership at a veterinary college, because I think that that that's extremely important. Yeah. If we are to look at diversity at the leadership level in the college of veterinary. Yeah. So you've talked a little bit about some of those barriers. One is just kind of entry into the profession in general and just exposure. And I just want to put, I just want to mention, I'm so glad that you mentioned this, Jaron, that, you know, you had a lot of pets, but didn't, you know, the connection between that and veterinary medicine. I did not know. You know, and I tell people all the time because they're like, oh, we should just encourage more people of color to have pets. And I'm like, that doesn't, I don't have anything to do with the veterinary profession in some parts of the country. Those two right. things don't necessarily go together. And no. so it's really about 
kind of understanding, you know, animal and pet ownership and kind of what does that mean for families? Because I tell people all the time, I grew up with a lot of animals as well. And, you know, our pet dog lived to 17. So he had plenty of opportunities to go to a vet, but he got, you know, he was one of a family of five humans and he got baby aspirin and Robitussin just like everybody else. Like, it's real, you know, yeah. it, it just wasn't a lot to go around. And we were actually a family doing okay. Right, right. Yeah. Right. And so, so I think that that this understanding kind of barriers to the profession is one piece. But what are some of the very specific barriers to kind of leadership ascension that are just kind of systemic that maybe we can let folks know about? Right now, it's uh, representation, and I think that uh, representation matters, and it matters because with representation comes an understanding of diverse populations and understanding those barriers of those populations and having someone who can essentially consult or mentor in terms of ascending the future of them, you know? And so right now, what you're seeing is when you have a population of of individuals in leadership who may think alike, who may look alike, who, you know, it, there are several different likenesses there, you can find that there can be, uh, it's hard for people to, in, t- in some cases, know how to get into that leadership role. It's like being a, a first generation college student, you know, and, and in this case, it's, we have the opportunity, but it's, Almost, you're you're treading the wilderness on your own, and that can feel that can, that can cause burnout. That can cause some 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 feeling of insecurity or imposter syndrome. And so, with representation, also comes that mentorship, and that's so valuable to have someone be able to say, "I've been through it," and have someone that may look like you or share some of the same beliefs or commonalities to say that I made it, you can too, or for you to not believe that you can do it and have them pour that encouragement into you to get you over those limiting and negative self-thoughts is key. But it takes representation. It takes thinking outside of the norm and thinking on a more diverse scale. What would what would cultivate an environment where people are encouraged to apply, knowing that they may be an only for the time being? Is it you're saying the goal that we are trying to diversify, we're trying to gain representation and if in this role, we will support you and continue to support others to bring in more thoughts and more voices as well. There are little things like that we just have to think about. We can't stay within the norm. And also understanding, too, just like we talked about our lived experiences, that comes with implicit bias. So even in terms of the candidates, when you're reviewing them, when you're interviewing them, if there's not, there no, if there is no diversity in the search committee or if diversity, equity, and inclusion isn't listed, or talked about in the search, then you lend spaces where there are huge gaps, where you may unintentionally score someone lower than if someone looked like you or if they thought like you or came from the same state or area code or socioeconomic status. And it's okay to recognize that, but it's imperative that we make the changes to make it more inclusive for a better understanding. Yeah, I think you you you, you talk about it in the sense of 
let's take a look at young people and looking at looking at people for their role models. And so you have a show on television like The Vet Life. Yeah. Yeah. That's only if you have uh, access to Animal Planet would you be able to see something like right. that, for example. And so you have that. Now, let's take the students who are in vet school and see what their professors look like. And so if they see, if they don't see professors that may look like them, then they may not see this as an opportunity for them. But many of them, in fact, and I know many of the students who have come through here because I've been here for quite a while, have gone forward and gotten their residencies, uh, have done their residencies and they've, you know, gone further, you know, passed their boards, but they're working for private companies. They haven't decided to come back into a college because maybe they felt like the college is not a place for them. You know, I don't I can't answer that question, but something that's that's where we deal with the issue of diversity and inclusion. That's why and inclusion is such an important part, because it's until we see ourselves, you know, or and, and seeing ourselves is not always necessarily necessarily about person that looks like you. Right. Seeing yourself doing that. Yeah. Meaning there are people that that appear to wrap around you and say, you would look good here. Right. You understand what I'm saying? Right. That's yeah. Not, that's <laughs> not, this, this is the place for you to be. You know, this is, this is where we want you to be. And that matters at the end of the day. Yes. Right. Yeah. I think that, that, so, so we talked about kind of that role modeling um, um, and that, that was role models don't necessarily have to look like you. Right. No. And in fact, the reality is just the straight numbers right now, they're not going to look like you. There's <laughs> just not enough folks to go around, right? I mean, right. it's just not enough, um, particularly when we're talking about women in leadership. We mm-hmm. have like 80% women, you know, students and maybe 30% faculty, 30 to 40% faculty overall women, right? And so while those numbers in, among the faculty are great in terms of the number of women who are actually serving in leadership roles, you start getting, you know, the, the further up you get, the more narrow some of, of those role models kind of become in terms of that. But then you talk about, can you see yourself here? Does the climate of the of the institution, and not just kind of for the, the college of, or um, of veterinary medicine, but but also in terms of um, organized veterinary medicine in terms of some of those um, private practices and whether or not they see themselves being able to move up in some of those environments. Does the climate lend itself to that? Is it an inclusive climate that signals that there's space and room for you here and, you know, and we value not only you as an individual, but the skill set that you bring to this environment as well, that you're valued? I think that one of the things that you haven't mentioned is kind of some of that lingering kind of the socioeconomic pieces and that some of these, certainly with the cost of veterinary education and some of the messaging that we hear in terms of how do you service that debt, you own a practice, right? That's a lot of, that's some of the messaging, not exclusive, so don't nobody send me hate mail, but, but that's one of the, one of numerous messages in terms of how do you manage veterinary education debt, right? College debt. But that then means that you're taking some folks who maybe are going and doing internships, residency, passing boards, maybe they're doing PhD, then they're kind of going off and doing some other things. Now, some folks, that's kind of what their path was all along, but some of them may be making it for some financial reasons, certainly associated with their educational debt. 
but also <laughs> kind of some of the cultural pieces around what does it mean to work outside of education, right? And so I think that it's important to understand that that some of the, the economic pieces may be influencing why people kind of stay in leadership, certain leadership tracks and why they don't. Yeah. I also think uh, to that point too, you know, recognizing that there are various funding opportunities and, and showcasing those opportunities to those interested in veterinary medicine is very, very important as well. When you think about uh, like for, for myself and how I ended up in agriculture at all was through the USDA 1890 scholarship. And so that, those are federal funds to help diversify the federal government, but it paid for your education. Um, and there are several grants and initiatives that also help to bring in more people into our spaces. And so that also takes being able to uh, take that information in the populations who don't know about it to help alleviate some of that debt, uh, but also being creative. We have several alumni who want to support more funding and more efforts to offset some of this cost if it helps to bring in a more diverse population, uh, but they don't know how to help. They don't know how to contribute. And so that's why you have to have, you know, these things, uh, you have to have diversity, equity, and inclusion at every space of veterinary medicine or your organization because it needs to be in development. It needs to be in your pre-vet advising. It needs to be in your pipeline development because there are several little things that together can help to alleviate those costs, but also bring in people who haven't necessarily been there before, been in those spaces before. And I think the other side to it all is, of course, you, you talk about money management, financial management. You know, it's a big, it's one of those big areas that, you know, people oftentimes from those socioeconomic communities, let me raise my hand, I'm one of them. You know, I mean, you know, I'm going into science, you know, you just, you, I didn't take business courses. I mean, just, I'm just, you know, so, you know, didn't understand, you know, you, you, you write checks, uh, you know, when you were a student, you write them and you live month by month and, you know, uh, Roman noodles and all the things that all come apart after <laughs> graduate school, everything. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's funny, but it's the reality of it all. Right. Until somebody can sit down and really have a conversation about it. You know, those are the kinds of things that we probably need to do a lot more and have a lot more sessions that talk about. How do you really manage this so that, yes, you're going to come out of college, you know, and out of vet school with, you know, a, with debt, but you're going to also come out of any other place. You know, you, you're probably going to come out of, you know, just with your four year degree with debt. So, the right. reality, so that's the reality. But how do you deal with that and how do you deal with financial management? What do you want to do in the future? Do you want to own your own practice? Do you want to do Do you want to do a residency and do you want to uh, move forward as far as that's concerned? Do you want to go into private? Do you want to work for industry? Do you want to work at a university? And then how do you plan your 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 path based on that and, and the financial components associated with that? Those are conversations that are extremely important. That's where good mentoring comes in and, 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 and saying to somebody, you, in many cases, you need more than one mentor. We always have said, hey, you need a mentor. No, you sometimes need more than one mentor because mm -hmm. there are different people who can mentor you in different aspects right. of, 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 of life, to be honest with you. And so I think that we need to have a more conversations, especially with students from low socioeconomic communities about financial management. Because unfortunately, it's it's generational, 
And it's, you know, it's just been passed down from generation to generation. It's no, no sense in being ashamed of it. You know, once you start speaking it, then you can start moving forward as far as that is concerned. And I think that's what we need to talk, do is talk about it and talk about how do we, we get out of it, to be honest. Yeah. Michael, I have a question for you because I'm assuming that in your illustrious career, you have served on more than one search committee. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Maybe two, three, I don't know. So we had a question that was sent in ahead of the, the show and this individual wanted to know what can folks from historically underrepresented backgrounds, what do they, what do you think that they need to know, learn, how can they market themselves better as potential leaders, maybe as you're looking at, or they're applying for, you know, new positions that would allow them to demonstrate some, some of those leadership skills that may not look like everybody else or, you know, the, the kind of cookie cutter historical model of leadership. Yeah, let me just say that 20 years ago, I may may have said something very, very different. Sure. And so today, it is it's, it's really about the entire package. And so your resume speaks one thing, but then your, your, your cover letter, your CV, all of that speaks a very, very different thing. And now people are really reading the cover letters in addition to the CV. So the CV only tells one aspect of you, but the cover letter really talks about your leadership a little bit more than your 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 CV does because your CV just has point blank what you did what were your you know your 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 articles your you know you know what you got your degree in you know all of the things that are associated there but your cover letter really talks about how you express your I mean how how you've been a leader so what you've done in the community or in your profession or in the associations that you belong in you know those kinds of things there's ways in which you can demonstrate in there how you have been how you have been an exemplary leader, you know, some of the things that we talked about in this conversation, you know, how do you bring this information out in a cover letter is extremely important. One of the things that we're doing now, um, and I I just, this is interesting because earlier today I had a conversation, one of our faculty members, we did a search and they had approximately 10 underrepresented candidates. Yes, and they 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 did the search very different, and so they did the search very different in that they looked, you know, put information out there and did a, a a search, and then said, if you're not eligible, if you know of someone, send them our way. And so they ended up getting a pool, and they're now down to three candidates, and all the three candidates are either you know from an underrepresented. Um, population in, in reference to um, ethnicity or race or of females. So mm. when you got that, those three as your final candidates, they've obviously mm. done a, a great job. And they're saying these, all of them are blown out, have blown out. Yeah. They're, they're just incredible. Let's just say that. And so, and they want to hire more than one, but you know, you right. can only do <laughs> But in every case, those individuals have been able to demonstrate their leadership through that cover letter. It is that cover letter that really matters. And then once you've done that, now you have to come in and you have to present yourself. And really, when you, you know, because one step is, of course, the cover letter. But when you now come to the university and you're on a search committee, we're on a search committee, you know, you get all your feedback from all the other faculty members. But it's all really about that search committee. And, you know, 
It's a, it's about really listening to the questions that are asked because sometimes I get hurt because um, we ask questions, but that question is not answered. It's, mm-hmm. it, it's, you go around that question, but you don't necessarily answer that question. And I'm caught because I'm like, there was a question that was yes. asked, you know, and so practice with people, you know, you know, practice with other people that are on your faculty, you know, um, with your mentor, with other people, have them ask you questions and make sure that you hone in on those skills. Lis- listening again, that active listening is very, very important to figure out what is it that they want. Write it down. It is OK to jot down when someone is asking you a question to jot down. What is the important things that they want to hear so you can look down and remind yourself of what you need to give them back when you're when when they're asking you a question. So you heard it here first. Cover letters are back in style. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes people go that the cover letters are not, depending on the position. Some folks are like, oh, the cover letter, we're skipping to, you know, look at the CV because we want to know what you've done. Right. But yeah. but I think that you've raised such an important point about the cover letter being that story that Jaron talks about right. and kind of how did you That's how right. do you weave together these bits and pieces in those CVs to actually demonstrate what it is that you want that search committee to know about you. Right. And, and, and one of the things you talked about was leadership. And so sometimes your, your CV doesn't always explain your leadership where the cover letter can explain your leadership and the leadership skills that you're bringing forth. All right. So I got just a couple more questions. Jaron, tell me about authentic leadership. Man, authentic leadership. Well, <laughs> it's uh, it's my favorite leadership theory. It's an approach to leadership that talks about honest relationships with yourself and your followers. And authentic leadership theory came into a place where there was a, a, rec- a recognition that currently in leadership, there were a lot of major scandals going on within the past 10 to 15 years with big leaders, whether it was money management, whether it was misconduct. And so the followers of these organizations or these leaders lost trust in several of our, our leaders. And so authentic leadership theory talks about being able to be self-aware, being honest through your actions and creating a space where your followers believe in your morals, your ethics, your values, and that they align with the company. And so you do that through uh, being vulnerable, practicing self-awareness and knowing why you are the leader of that organization, what you contribute, your uh, implicit unconscious or conscious bias, being able to listen for understanding of those around you um, and create that relationship where everyone within the organization feels that your actions and your leadership is from a, the, the most authentic space. There's a book called True North that talks about authentic leadership. I mean, it's saying, you know, everyone has their true north, that those things, those lived experiences that always, uh, when you're doing them and operating within that space, feels like you're guided in the right direction. And so honing that throughout your everyday practice of leadership uh, with your organization. And essentially, you know, be, just just being authentic. Uh, it, it sounds easy, but it's a constant action with self-reflection and, and engagement with the people that you lead. Awesome sauce. So very, very cool. We'll have to get together for one of my, um, I call them red wine conversations. My yes. my dissertation focused on charismatic leaders. Uh-huh. Not always authentic. <laughs> yes, but they can sell 
you a TV. They can sell you a TV, a bridge, and an island. <laughs> when you already have one. <laughs> or when they don't exist. So, right. so. Fascinating. They're wow. not always bad. That's but yeah. but they, you know, charismatic certainly get a bad rap, but they're not always bad. They're they're sure. really remarkable individuals and they they have some really interesting attributes that I think are valuable to leadership in general. Yeah. It's just kind of one of those, you know. Um, the intersection between charismatic and, and authentic sometimes doesn't. Sure. Sometimes they're parallel. Sometimes they don't. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, one, one of the things that I do like about one of the things I do like about authentic leadership is that it's a constant practice of self reflecting to make sure that you're leading what you're supposed to be leaving, leading or or what your heart desires, that purpose piece. And so I, I always bring it back to storytelling, but that helps you when you're, especially like self-narration, like your mm-hmm. own story. Um, it helps you to understand, like you can come to a point where like, say you're leading a committee and maybe there's burnout, maybe life has just changed where your passion, your purpose just isn't in it anymore. Well, that leadership ability to say, this no longer fulfills me and I know that there's someone else or something else that could bring that fulfillment to fill that void, that takes leadership, you know, uh, that, to be able to say, you know, this is something that, that, that I'm, I, can, I can put my whole self into and finding someone who can you know, it's like the strengths and weaknesses side. Mm-hmm. And, and and that's what I found most rewarding for me is understanding that we're not attached to these things forever. And we have to constantly recognize, is this something that I still need to contribute my leadership to? Mm-hmm. And what else, what evolves and where's my heart, where's my true north leading me now? Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that passion, the product will be seen. Like people will see that in the end result and it'll be valued. That's a great place to to end the larger discussion on. I think that one of the big themes I think of our conversation this last hour has been that that leadership is always evolving, mm-hmm. always evolving. So, in my last question to you both, and Michael, I'm going to give this to you first. Who or what been kind of that leadership archetype that you've kind of modeled or followed for you know your <laughs> life, recognizing that it evolves and it may be multiple people, but kind of who, who is that model for you? Um, the, the late Dr. James Scott, and I don't know if you know Dr. James Scott, but at one time he, um, he was, he was big in student affairs. Mm-hmm. And so in fact, he was the national president, um, the organization that, uh, NASPA. And so, um, he was that kind of leader that we talk about. And in fact, he led with a level of calmness, but also you knew at the very same time that he was very serious about, you know, the work that he did. And he was very student-centered. And so, uh, you know, uh, diversity was his before diversity was diversity inclusion became, you know, something that, you know, um, we talk about equity might've been a word at the time or equality might've been, or even affirmative action, to be honest with you. But he understood what it was for all to, to, you know, what it was to, to help all students be successful, uh, regardless of who those students were, uh, um, who those students were. 
he understood diversity was not just about being, was not a race driven, it was not ethnicity. It was everybody who walked into the room, brought into the room diversity. Mm. Students don't seem to understand that. People don't seem to understand that. And once people understand that, then they'll realize how great this world can be if we can all appreciate everything that we all bring to the table. And that's who, uh, that, that is definitely the person that I think uh, oh, is great. the epitome of the work that, you know, of leadership and the work that I see, the work that I do, to be honest with you. Oh, that's great. All right. Darren, you're up. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> like you took my guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I have two. I have two. So go through both of them quick. I think one on a, on a just on a broader scale in terms of uh, social justice work and equity in honor of Dr. King today is his birthday. Um, mm-hmm. It's being recorded on January 15th. Yep. And so the way that he was, he took his lived experience, experiencing racism as a child and wanting to play with friends that he could not play with and wanting to fix that and how that extended throughout his entire life of creating equity. It, it, it was, you know, from the poor person's campaign, from the work with the sanitation workers, from the Civil Rights Act, uh, everything that he did was based upon inclusion and equity. And that fueled the diversity there. And you look at the movements that he did, you know, he, he, he you had all representation there. And if it, it was about being an ally in that representation as well. And so he just did a great job of pouring into people and having them believe and know that there is a space, there is the mountaintop where that we, we can continue through this type of work to create a space where it's equitable and it's inclusive and representative of the, the world. And so I just, I, I love the way that he just kept a cool head, but he was always persistent and a, and a disruptor for social justice, but even inclusive in that disruption. And so I appreciate him. And the veterinary profession, my mentor, you mentioned her earlier, Mrs. Pat Lowry. She has helped me so much in the role uh, of just understanding uh, veterinary medicine, uh, how diversity, equity, and inclusion parallels with veterinary medicine in particular. And then being that person where I might feel like I'm a little burnout, she's... she's Send me that little bit of encouragement. Oh, you got this. You 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 have a singing burnout. You know <laughs> those little things. The way she just does uh, the work that that important work that she does with such with such grace, and it's it's just been a, a pleasure to have her as a mentor. And I'm so glad she's here in Florida right now. So she's right down the street. I, I well, about six hours in Miami, so they have a little bit warmer weather than we have. But yeah, definitely Mrs. Pat Lauder. She's an amazing, amazing mentor. Absolutely. Thank you both. I'm so glad that you brought up uh, Martin Luther King. I too certainly look to him, but but more broadly, I think my some of my archetypes in terms of leadership role modeling. I I mean I, I grew up in the, I grew up child of the South as well, Richmond, Virginia, which desperately wishes it was more Southern than it actually is. But I mean, I think that for a lot of people of color and particularly African-Americans in the United States, I think that many of kind of the larger landscape uh, leadership role models that we've had and, and looked to over the years have come out of kind of the, the, the Black church, right? And kind of that was the vehicle for not only kind of 
positions of leadership, but that social justice movement as well. And I and and like you, I certainly look to Dr. King and certainly many others. Uh, my own pastor growing up, who was the first person in my city to to name a woman pastor as oh, wow. um, his assistant pastor, which was just plain heresy back in <laughs> you know back in the seventies. Like, right. oh my <laughs> goodness, a woman in the pulpit, right? And so. Wow really kind of individuals who, again, looked to that visionary kind of aspirational horizon and really are thinking about moving moving communities towards that horizon, but also not being afraid to call a thing a thing. Right. And that's um, something that I think is also really in leadership, um, not only kind of that personal reflective honesty, but also kind of saying, no, no, <laughs> that, that's not okay. Um, and I think that's an um, important part of not only diversity and inclusion work, but really kind of the core of leadership and really kind of having that compass, that, that true north. Right. So thank you both for a really great discussion. I really, really appreciate it. This has been fun. Yeah, and thank you for the important work that you're doing. Yeah. Continue to do this, please. Yes, thank, thank you for having us. It's been fun. Yeah, so it's been yeah. fun. <laughs> thank you so much. So this has been another fantastic episode of, of AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. You can find the podcast on uh, Apple. You can find it on Stitcher. You can find it on um, all of the podcast apps. Apparently, you can also say, Alexa, play AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air if you're into Alexa. <laughs> or Siri <laughs> or Siri please be sure to rate us drop us that five star review so that more professionals will be able to find us and share our episodes you can also find us on SoundCloud so again from AABMC here in Washington DC thank you to my guest Dr. Jaron Jones and Dr. Michael oh my lord Bowie <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Bowie. I really appreciate you. Um, big ups to University of Florida's College of Veterinary Medicine. Thank you so much for participating. And until next time, thank you again. All right. Thank you. Thank you.